0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is a BYU-Idaho student who drove to my house on a cold Saturday in February. Luckily, there was no snow. Named Noah Kelsch. Welcome to the podcast,
1: Noah. Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. And will you spell your last name for our listeners? Yeah, it's uh, K-E-L-S-C-H.
0: And I'm going to have you pull that mic a little closer to you. I forgot to tell you that ahead of time. That's all right. Um, Noah and I connected. We're meeting for the first time, but I did a Facebook post on February 1st, and I'll read that post for our listeners. Want to help lower anxiety and stress for LDS youth and and young adults and increase obedience? Consider how these words may be difficult for some members. Perfect obedience exact obedience sin-resistant generation i believe in obedience as it brings best blessings into my life but for some of our members these phrases can be an unattainable goal sin-resistant can create an expectation that parents leaders or people themselves can do things to cause one never to sin like a vaccination that's an unreal expectation for some Unreal expectations can lead to decreased hope, feelings of measuring up shame and self-loathing. That makes obedience harder. Some give up, concluding they will never make it. Satan does not win if we sin. He wins if he can cause us to believe the lie that we will never be good enough are outside of God's love. And if our situation is so hopeless, the atonement of Jesus Christ doesn't apply to us. Elder Holland taught, be ye therefore perfect, eventually. And that post generated a lot of discussion, and as I, sometimes it's hard for me to keep track of Facebook posts and all the comments, but I noticed Noah's comment, who I didn't (laughs) know at the time, and I'll just read what Noah wrote. For those who are pushing back against or attempting to pick apart the words of Brother Osler, I am inclined to believe that few or none of you have experienced the type of struggles with OCD, scrupulosity, anxiety, etc., to which he was referring. While phrases such as perfect obedience, exact obedience, and sin-resistant generation are rarely said with malicious intent, consider how the connotation of such phrases may lead someone who already struggles to feel they are, never ever will measure up, to feel even more hopelessness, or not good enough. Understand that while some of these statements are prevalent in the church culture may not affect you at all, there are many there are many whom these statements are very harmful for. To me, it does not appear he's suggesting to lower God's standards. Rather, we be more considerate and compassionate in how we teach about and encourage them. And then you're honest here, Noah. As a lifelong member of the church who has struggled with OCD and scrupulosity, I appreciate and thank you for your words. So I reached out to Noah and said, hey, you got a story to tell here, Noah. (laughs) And I think it'd be great if you shared that on our podcast so our listeners would be able to hear more of your journey with scrupulosity and OCD, and here Noah is. And just background Noah, he's a BYU student um, working on a degree in marriage and family studies, would like to become that kind of a therapist. I think he'd be really good at it. He grew up um, in San Diego um, for a shorter time, most of the time growing up, and where he graduated from high school is Gilbert, Arizona. He served a mission in the Chile-Santiago South Mission. His first mission president, President Sister Cook, um, have been on an earlier podcast talking about service missions, and so we have that common connection there. <laughs> um, anything that needs to be corrected at this point, Noah?
1: Uh, not so far.
0: And you are 20... 22. 22. You're a young guy. Done yeah. with your mission and that far along in college?
1: Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I, I found out that I took a lot of dual enrollment in high school that I had no idea about. <laughs> and so when I was transferring up to BYU-Idaho, I noticed that I had all these credits and felt super blessed.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um, as our listeners know, we've done a few podcasts on scrupulosity, and I, it's just been a fascinating thing for me and my wife, who's a church service missionary at the conference center. Someone saw her last name and recently and said, "You know, are you? Did you? Your husband do a podcast on scrupulosity?" And I think <laughs> as more of our members um, hear these type of podcasts, and there's been a wonderful Ensign article by Sister McClendon. I think more are sort of self-diagnosing or more therapists are aware of this or even more local leaders are seeing symptoms of this and wondering, is this young man or woman have scrupulosity versus a need to continually print, which are two very different things. Yeah. So, talk to us about um, as you look back on your life and just for our listeners know, um, Noah was just recently diagnosed with scrupulosity, but that's not because he just contracted it <laughs> a yeah. few months ago. <laughs> I think once people are diagnosed and there's a label for what there is going on, most are able to go back and go, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh that oh my goodness, that makes sense. And so as you look back on your life, talk about when you first kind of noticed this was going on in your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They say hindsight's 2020. So um Looking back, the earliest that I can remember uh, experiencing these kind of obsessive thoughts, because essentially what scrupulosity is, is it's a religious form of obsessive compulsive disorder. And so I, uh, I remember back in high school, there was a period of time where I was wondering, I was wondering, about my sexual orientation. Uh, It wasn't, like, I I have a hard time describing it because I know that one way that uh, it can come across is that, like, I'm in denial or something like that. However, what it was, was I had these thoughts that, you know, you might be gay, you might be gay, you might be gay. And then it was just constantly questioning. And, and I knew that I was attracted to girls. I had liked girls my entire life. I had never once had a crush on a boy, you know, anything like that. But for some reason, that was just like whirring around in my head and I could not escape it, no matter how many times people that I, that I spoke to about it, uh, my mom, my dad, uh, even close friends, they would say, there's like, I've never thought that you were gay for a second. I never have, you know, I've never thought that. And so that's kind of where I remember that starting. Uh, it's not something that I struggle with now, thankfully. Um, but, and also just a disclaimer, not that there's anything wrong with being gay. You know, I, I was, I didn't care if I was, I just wanted to to figure it out. But, uh, that's, that's what I remember, uh, initially. And as high school went on, um, there were kind of little things like that, little things that maybe I felt like, oh, I need to confess to my Bishop about this tiny little thing that rationally would not need to be confessed. Um, but it really ramped up when I was preparing to serve my mission. Uh, the leaders of the church, both general and local, um, in with good hearts, encourage uh, prospective missionaries to, in a way, cover all their bases, to make sure that uh, everything in their life is cleaned up and in a way tied up in a nice little bow before they're sent off to the NTC to to preach the gospel. And um, I, you know, I wanted to be clean. I wanted to serve a mission. I wanted to be the best instrument in the Lord's hands that I could. I wanted to uh, see the miracles that everybody talked about uh, when they served missions as well. And so I was, I remember... One specific uh, incident, I was in a mission prep class and a church leader, I think he was a 70 and I think he still is a 70, he came and spoke to us and um, he really drove that point. Uh, He he was very intense about it as well. he really drove that point that you needed to be worthy and that you needed to take care of absolutely everything that needed to be taken care of before, um, before going on your mission. And I remember I was sitting there and I just felt sick and I felt almost panicked. And I, I went back home to my mom and I was just almost hysterical. I was like, Mom, I... I am worried that I don't like that. I'm not worthy, that I'm not, that I haven't taken care of everything that I need to take care of. Like these things that I feel like I need to confess, it's not that, like I'm I'm remembering all these things that I did when I was like 12 or 13 that aren't even that big of a deal. But for some reason, I feel like I need to go and confess them. Otherwise I'm not going to be at peace about this. I'm just going to be constantly wondering, and uh, my mom is an angel, and so uh, I think that you know, no matter what she said, it, it didn't help me feel any better. Uh, but she told me that I was fine, that I had nothing to worry about. You know, she, being the angel mother that she is, but I'm sure that made her feel helpless. That I, I could not be consoled. I, I had to like. It, It just was so intrusive and so unavoidable and so i i must have seen my bishop like three or four times just to confess these very insignificant um, things that i had done when i was 12 years old or 13 years old or whatever Um, and then another example was i remember i was in my my interview with my stake president and he, for your mission? For my mission, correct, yeah. And he, you know, those those questions are intense that they ask you. And one of the questions was, uh, when was the last time you've seen pornography? And so I asked him, I was like, well, when's the last time I've seen it or the last time that I've actively searched for it? And because um, There's can't a difference. Not, yeah, there's a difference. And he said, oh, the last time you've actively sought for it. And I... Almost immediately, responded um, never, and I. It, that was mostly true, except for one incident when I was 12. That was very, very mild and very, um, again insignificant. But I, I said never, and then for weeks after that interview, I couldn't like get rid of the urge to call my stake president and be like, Hey, you remember that one question that you asked me? Well, here's something I looked up when I was 12, looked at for two seconds and then told my mom because I felt so guilty about, uh, I didn't do that. And eventually after just, yeah, I, it, eventually it went away. Um, that particular compulsion or obsession or whatever, but, as i got onto my mission they they kind of drive that same point you know be clean be worthy take care of everything da, da 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 and um i was in the mtc and i remembered something that i had done in high school again not anything to send a missionary home over not anything that would um prevent me from being able to enter the temple or, or anything like that, but it was just weighing on me so, so hard. And, um, it got to the point where, uh, I just, I called the MTC president, met with him, told him about it. He assured me that, you know, it was nothing serious, that it was nothing that I would need to get sent home over or anything like that. And, sent me off on my merry way. And, and like that obsession was gone right after that. And that happened a few more times on my mission, uh, with my mission presidents, I would call them and, you know, meet with them or just confess something over the phone or whatever. But it was again, very mild things I've. Yeah. And so, uh, on my mission there. Yeah. That another thing that's stressed on a mission is obedience. Um, And so that's why I was interested in your post that you mentioned. You talked about how things like perfect obedience, exact obedience, and da-da-da-da, can be harmful. And I remember that uh, on my mission, I, I wanted to be obedient. I wanted to be exactly obedient, but I felt that that expectation to be exactly obedient was somewhat unrealistic, at least exactly obedient all the time. I knew that I could be perfect in trying. Um, but you know, if I woke up two minutes after my alarm went off, I felt terrible the rest of the day. Or if I walked by somebody without talking to them, I felt terrible. Or I don't know if I, if I spoke English too much in public, I felt terrible. And so that was really, really hard. Um, I even remember a, a mission conference where a 70 came with his wife. I think he. Well, yeah. I. I'll be vague. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, him and his wife. They told a story. They were driving in the point of exact and perfect obedience, and they told a story of how their son, on his mission, like his tire on his bike blew out on their way home. Um, and they were supposed to be home in like 10 minutes or something like that. And so in order to remain exactly obedient, he picked up his bike and sprinted home in order to be home on time. And I remember thinking like, that seems a bit excessive. Like, I I understand the principle of obedience, but I just felt like, I, I don't really think the Lord cares if you're a couple minutes late because your bike tire blew out. And, but yeah, that, that was something that like really kind of triggered some more reactions in me. Like, am I thinking about this all wrong? Like, would I actually have to pick up my bike and sprint to be, you know, worthy enough before the Lord, like just to get home on time. And so I eventually, um, reached a breaking point on my mission where just the feelings of stress and anxiety and just internal conflict were so strong that i couldn't function as a missionary and so i called my mission president and said hey i you know i told him i can't stop stressing i can't like i no matter what i do i can't stop and he was very understanding and very quickly um, said okay we're going to get you in to see a therapist Uh, and so for the next five or six weeks, I met with a therapist weekly, which helped, uh, it helped calm me down. But as I said, in, in our conversation before, uh, it kind of, it was more of a bandaid solution than it was an actual, yeah, it it was more of a bandaid solution than it was an actual solution. Um, but it got me through the rest of my mission. I was relatively okay uh after that still you know tiny little things kind of made me feel unworthy or discouraged but uh was able to complete the full two years i got home and uh, yeah stuff was pretty good uh i was you know thankfully when i was leaving my mission um our our mission presidents prepared us very well to adjust to home life, um, fairly quickly. And so coming home wasn't difficult for me. Uh, it was, it was great. Uh, I loved being able to watch movies again and and stuff like that. Um, and I, I had no problem with that, but, and then there were just a few more experiences after coming home that, you know, looking back, I can recognize like, oh yeah, that was that was scrupulosity, that was OCD and da da. But then what got me to the point of being diagnosed, um, I was I was in a relationship that ended badly. And looking back, it wasn't a very healthy relationship as well. And so I think that kind of catalyzed and brought some more stuff to the surface that I wasn't aware of. But as far as I knew, uh, I was just dealing with the, you know, traumatic aftermath of a breakup, just like anybody does when they break up, you know, it's hard, but a few months went by and things weren't getting any better. And my thoughts just whirred around over and over and over and over. So I decided that I was going to see a therapist. And upon meeting with that therapist, that's when the, the diagnosis happened. And uh, yeah. That's that's kind of the chronology of the story. Um, yeah, it's
0: good. Um, thanks for just kind of walking us through that, Noah. and yeah. It gives our listeners a perspective, of just kind of where you are in your journey. And I'm sure a lot would love to ask you questions right now. And yeah. some are nodding <laughs> their heads, saying, "That's me. That's me." Uh-huh. there's actually someone that's gone through what I'm going through. Right. Um, I let's go back to. You know, we do do a lot of LGBTQ podcasts and I love the way you talked openly about just, um, that was one of the things going around and around in your brain. I'm not gay. Yeah. And I, and I love the way you just realized, you know, that you're not gay and that was just a thought going around in your mind. And I bet as I've met with other people, those kind of thoughts are part of the journey with scrupulosity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even
0: inappropriate thoughts about little children, um, that would come into someone's mind. They would never do those thoughts, but mm-hmm. those thoughts, I think a lot of people have a lot of thoughts, and for people with scrupulosity, they're not able to dismiss those thoughts like yeah. the rest of us can. And yeah. so a, th- a thought, I mean, I probably thought I could be a murderer at some point, or right. I could be a mass murderer. <laughs> yeah. And so I think f- with someone with scrupulosity, that thought just stays. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you just were open about that and realized that you're not gay and Mm -hmm. that's not going to be your future. And you recognize you love always like girls, and never had a crush on a guy. Right. But you also acknowledge that's a real thing for other people. So I thought you handled that really well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, Any thoughts about what we can do to better prepare missionaries for missions without and wanting to... To talk about the importance of obedience, uh-huh. which helps us be better missionaries and being uh-huh. worthy without perhaps triggering scrupulosity or this unreal expectation. Any just thoughts uh-huh. that you would go back if you were a visiting you know, leader yeah. to a mission prep class or an MTC president or a mission president talking to missionaries as they first arrive? How would you handle that?
1: I think we need to be more specific about the things that need to be taken care of before missionary service i think that typically when that's talked about it's make sure you take care of everything that needs to be taken care of it's okay what is that you know what needs to be taken care of what would render me unable spiritually to be an effective instrument in the lord's hands and to lay that out well because i think especially for an individual that that struggles with scrupulosity that is such a broad spectrum. It's so broad. And even something as simple as, you know, kissing a girl too passionately, but, you know, not going any further than that is something that needs to be confessed in their minds and they can't get it out at all. And so I think, you know, we need to be explicit about what missionaries need to repent of prior to their missionary service, whether that be problems with the word of wisdom, with the law of chastity, um, or, or any other commandment where a, a serious transgression or a serious sin or slip up would would render them, um, I, I say, unworthy in, in quotes. Um, because the problem is that scrupulous scrupulous individuals think that they are the exception to the atonement they think that the atonement applies to everybody except for them and so they need to clear up every little detail they possibly can um i guess i should be saying we instead of they we (laughs) we feel like we need to yeah just scrub the plate so clean like cleaner than it's capable of, of, of being. And so, yeah, as far as that, I think that we need to be specific about what missionaries need to take care of.
0: I love that. And, um, that is a really practical suggestion. I'm thinking of our own stake president. I'm in our own stake here in Salt Lake, President David Sturt, and he started, he's about eight or nine years into his service, but he started a fireside, um, a year before, um, elders or sisters were el- eligible to go. And he, awesome. he invited all the potential missionaries, plus their parents to come. And he just laid out his interview that he was going to have mm-hmm. for missionaries at that point, And he told them all the questions he was going to ask. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really grateful as a parent to sit there with several of our kids to know exactly what questions he was going to ask and where... Right. He was very clear on the line of the law of chastity and what mm-hmm. would potentially. He was clear about, you know, intercourse, oral sex, and mm-hmm. and just um, the. And I don't want to. I can't exactly communicate what he said about the timing potential. Sure. Of what that would mean, but he was very clear about the sins that would require a time period before a missionary could be worthy. Yeah. And I thought that was. And then as you're thinking, I'm thinking, well, maybe we should move that back even younger, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and there's, you could even do that at age 14,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, at age 16. And so everybody would know exactly because I, because there's a lot of, even as a YSA bishop, a lot of YSAs had a lot of unknowns about where you break the law of chastity. Yeah. Um, and that, that's probably a different podcast. Yeah. You know, we have <laughs> vocabulary like heavy petting, light petting. and I didn't it, even know what that meant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so sometimes we'll say that as priesthood leaders, but I think it's good just to ex- explain what that means. Yeah. And not go on the assumption that everybody knows and then help the YSAs. I'm thinking of YSAs, but this would apply to teenagers understand what those terms mean, what is appropriate or not appropriate within the law of chastity, correct, right. and what needs to be talked about with the bishop? Yeah. because that unknown I think would add to your mind is working with scrupulosity. yeah, and it, it,
1: yeah <laughs> I because I know that we it, we are hesitant to draw a line in the sand, be like be, because I guess there is a worry that someone will get as close to the line as they possibly can without going over it. Um, but I do think that those specifics are are needed, uh, especially for young adults and teenagers preparing to serve missions. I also think that the the way that it's it's brought up, the way that it's spoken about is is something that needs to be addressed because a lot of times there's a lot of shame associated with it. Uh, there's a lot of you know. <sighs> A lot of justice and not a lot of mercy. (laughs) Um, Christ was never shameful. He was blunt and he was honest, but he was never shameful. And so when people, when leaders, you know, they say, you need to take care of everything that needs to be taken care of before going on a mission that can, that can produce shame. Um, But if they followed that statement up with, because, you know, we want, the Lord wants your mission to be a beautiful experience for you and for those that you teach, he wants you to be clean. He wants you to be capable of experiencing the fullness of what he wants for you, both in life and on your mission. That I feel would be a far more helpful way of framing that principle of being clean and being worthy other than you're going to be unworthy to be a missionary unless you repent. Does that make sense? It does.
0: I I really agree with shame. I think shame is one of Satan's greatest tools to isolate people and keep them in their thoughts and keep them in potentially their sin and i love your point that christ never shame people mm-hmm. i think the most powerful example that i know of noah is when the prodigal returned yeah and the father who who to me represents heavenly father or mm-hmm. christ on that open field so, and this is the kind of the worst case scenario yeah talking about not being worthy sold his father inheritance and and broke every seems to break every commandment possible in, yeah. in that faraway land and and the the Savior sets up that parable daylight for, I think, a reason so that we can see how the father reacts and he runs and there's no shaming, there's no groveling, there's no reminding him of what he did. He just, I think it stunned the son to have his father just hug him the way he did. Yeah. And then he t- tells um, in that parable, we come we don't come back as a servant, we come back as a son as he puts a robe on his shoulders and a ring on his finger and... Mm-hmm. I've thought about that parable in the context that there's no shame involved in that. Yeah. Um, and that's just been in the last couple years as I better understood shame. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked about masturbation on this podcast for a long time. I, <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about a lot now. But uh, it is one of the things that that's one of the things I think we need to be more explicit is that sin and, and where it sort of ranks as a sin, I think all teenagers, and young adults recognize that that is a sin. But since we don't talk about it very much, Mm -hmm. and it's not really talked about directly in the strength of youth, Mm -hmm. there's so much misinformation. I was kind of stunned as a YSA bishop when I started talking to YSAs about that and the range of feelings they had on how serious or not serious a sin that was. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that came from fathers or prior priesthood leaders or just no information and just self-concluding. And I, you know, I did an earlier podcast. You can Google it if you want to find it. I think it's down in the number 10 world. It's a long time ago. But just some thoughts about that sin in particular that I think is a sin. But I think one of the greatest challenges of that sin is the shame that it creates and the isolation it creates and the feeling of not worthy or not good enough. And I finally told some of the YSAs just as as a side note here that on a sexual sin scale, and I don't think this is... You know, I'm not trying to create policy for the church. This is just what I said to YSAs on a 1 to 10 scale, with 10 being the worst sexual sin, which I would consider selling children into sex trafficking or, you know, being with sex trafficked children, that would be a 10, or even maybe killing people in that process. I put this, you know, on a 1 or 2 scale, with 1 being the least serious sexual sin. And it's still a sin, but it's not a major sin. It's not listed of one of the things in the handbook that's a major sin. So I then by default conclude it's a minor sin. And that isn't permission to engage in that sin, especially if it's not accompanied with pornography, but an invitation to put that in the right context so you can move forward um, in a positive, healthy, non-shaming way. Um, Talk about... um, One of the visuals you shared with, um, as you go back and look at things, um, it's very hard to, um, for someone with OCD or scrupulosity to understand the difference between a spiritual impression and what OCD Mm -hmm. is. And share with our listeners about that, Noah.
1: Yeah. So I, I describe it as attempting to untangle fishing line. Uh, you, it's, you know, two lines mixed together. They look the the same and it's just you don't know what's what. Um, because I guess the the real struggle with scrupulosity or religious OCD as opposed to, you know, somebody that, you know, feels the need to lock doors or to wash their hands an unreasonable amount of times uh, is that. The things that you're feeling compelled to do are really they're not bad things um, and it, some of them are even good things you know repent confess to your bishop pray read your scriptures go to the temple you know stuff like that these are all good things but applied in the wrong context or from the wrong motivation can be dangerous uh, because the way that OCD works is you have this obsession, which is a you know intrusive, unwanted thought that typically drives you to perform a compulsion that you know in the short term will satisfy that obsession and cause it to go away for a little bit. And so you know, as an example. Um, If you're feeling like, if you remember, using my example, if you remember something you did when you were young that was dumb, but you didn't, you never needed to confess to the bishop about it, all of a sudden you start thinking about that thing every time that repentance is mentioned in church or every time that um, obedience is measured or uh, not measured, uh, mentioned in church. Like that, those types of things will trigger that kind of thought and it'll whir around in your head for a little bit and you will feel compelled to speak to the bishop about it and confess it, get it off your chest. And you know that if you do that, that obsession will go away. But the problem with that is because some people would just say, well, just do it and get it over with. But the problem with that is that by doing that, you are feeding that, that cognitive distortion. You're making it stronger and it's going to cause problems that are more difficult to solve later down the road. And so it kind of puts you between a rock and a hard place because if you don't do it, your anxiety is... Through the roof
0: Explain that part of it That's very helpful for me Explain why not acting on the compulsion mm-hmm. Results in anxiety
1: Yeah so when you have the the Obsession and compulsion Worrying around in your brain it, Logically you know That if you do If you perform this compulsion The obsession will go away for a short period And so But You also know that if you don't it'll just get stronger. And so when you don't do it, the obsession doesn't go away and it stays there. And it just, it's exactly what it is. It's an obsession. It does not go away. No matter what you do, no matter what anybody says, no matter how illogical that obsession is, it just will not go away. It's like a fly that keeps buzzing in your ear and you keep swatting at it, but it keeps coming back. And that just, it just elevates your stress levels because you almost feel like your own worst enemy. Um, You feel like you're getting, I describe it as if you've ever seen the Rocky movies, when Rocky gets into the ring, he just gets hit in the face time after time, after time, after time, after time, after time, lands a few punches, keeps getting just punched in the face. And that's kind of what it feels like mentally. So it's painful. And I think that's why the anxiety goes up because you you are in pain because no matter how rational your thought process is, you're you're stuck thinking if I don't do this I'm never going to feel good again. I I'm unworthy, God's not speaking to me, God doesn't love me. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not obedient enough. I don't love God enough, I guess, if I'm not willing to follow through on this good thing that, that he's telling me to do, which is another complication in the church, because even the scriptures say every good thing comes from God, every good thought, you know, act on it because that's the spirit, but there, there's, there's gotta be a butt there because you can't reinforce that like where the motivation is just to, I guess, appease that obsession. And so that, that is something that I struggle with even still is that principle that every good thing comes from God because these are good things that I'm being compelled to do. But if I do them, it's, it's not going to, it, it's not gonna help. It's just gonna put a Band-Aid over something.
0: Talk about some of the ways that you act on the compulsion. One is that we've talked about is confessing. Yeah, confession. What are some other
1: ones? Uh, excessive praying.
0: Excessive praying. Yeah. That's not a term that I've ever, it's not <laughs> in a typical church talk or church material, yeah. excessive praying. Yeah. But I would guess that's possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean if I'm talking to somebody all day, they're probably gonna get sick of me. I mean, Heavenly Father will never get sick of me talking to them, but it it just, it's not necessary. You know, I I can pray the necessary amount. I can pray a lot and, you know, form a good relationship with Heavenly Father. But if the motivation behind that prayer is always anxiety and it's constant and over, if and the over, mo- and I hope
0: you realize how powerful that was you just said. Yeah. If the motivation behind that prayer is to relieve anxiety um, because of this issue, that's um, not, you know, f- you're saying prayer is still very valid. Yeah. But... F- in this case, excessive praying adds to the whole challenge. Mm-hmm. It reinforces the whole cycle.
1: If you could,
0: exactly. Because it, a good- Because it does, it's like, the only thing I can relate to is washing hands. If yeah. I just feel like my hands are always dirty, mm-hmm. and so the compulsion then is washing hands, mm-hmm. and then that relieves, but it just reinforces, and it mm-hmm. my anxiety,
1: I assume, lifts, mm-hmm. and it, but it reinforces the whole cycle. Exactly, and, and when it comes back, it comes back stronger. Because I've washed my hands. Because you've reinforced that. Yeah, you've washed your hands. Because I've confessed to the bishop, because I've apologized, because I've excessive praying. Exactly. Because you've done those things and the obsession went away, when the obsession comes back, it's going to be more powerful because you gave it that power.
0: So now you're back between a rock and a hard place. So you've either got to, you know, you've got these, tell us how you solve this. And I recognize everybody I've met with (laughs) scrupulosity has not looked me in the eye and say, I've solved this. Yeah, it's like, I have the magic pill. um, So what are the other options?
1: Oh, man. That, I'm still figuring that out. That's honest. Yeah. Um, Therapy has helped a lot. Um, Social support has helped a lot. Um, Medication has helped a lot.
0: How does medication help?
1: So what I'm currently taking, it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor uh, called sertraline, or it's sometimes called Zoloft. Um, And what it does is it kind of limits the amount of serotonin that is taken back up into my neurons. And so what that does is it doesn't completely eradicate um, the obsessive thoughts, but it can help. Uh, most studies show that uh, talk therapy and medication combined is the most effective treatment because one or the other is incomplete. It, it addresses part of the issue, but if you use both together, it, it it's a lot more effective. And so the medication has helped me at least on a chemical and biological level not be, you know, taking in so much of the neurotransmitters that contribute to these obsessions. Um, Again, they still occur, but, you know, six months ago when I wasn't taking anything, or maybe I was six months ago, it's gone by fast, but... You know, when I wasn't taking anything and now when I when I've been consistently taking medication, the the difference is night and day. Or I guess maybe night and almost sunset. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So yeah, medication helps a lot. And I think just one thing that my therapist has talked about a lot is mindfulness and accepting the the truth that you are not your thoughts. And thoughts come and go and not every thought is significant. You know, um, we can be moved upon by the spirit in our thoughts, but it's important. The the Lord also tells us that our mind and heart will agree with each other. And when they don't agree with each other, something's something might be a little bit off. At least in my case, I've, that's how, I've, how I have found it to be. Other people experience uh, revelation in different ways and that's awesome. Uh, for me, if my mind and my heart are disagreeing, that's kind of an indication that something's gone awry. Um, and so I think I have to make the decision every day to choose to trust what my therapist has said to trust what my parents have told me, trust what my friends have told me, and ultimately trust Christ that he'll help me, even though I feel so completely alone. Um, so I, I think that for me has been the real, I guess the the cornerstone of being able to cope um, is making the decision sometimes daily, sometimes every minute, sometimes every hour, sometimes every week, to trust um, in all those things, and to just keep, keep going.
0: I love that, no, I love the mindfulness. Yeah. Um, I've heard some, and I, I'm not clinically trained, so I don't want to get too far in this area of talk about a type of therapy, and maybe it's exposure response therapy, mm-hmm. Um, where you sort of accept I'm not worthy, yeah, or your hands aren't clean, yeah, um, but you sort of live in the live in the ambiguity of that. That somehow, for some, is helpful in the long run.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, have you thought about, heard about that, or does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, I know that. Um, and when uh, saying you're not worthy, I think it's sort of saying I'm worthy enough to accomplish my life mission. That God loves me. That my right. future girlfriend will date me and right. marry me. <laughs> But so you're holding some positive. It's not just, you know, you're unworthy and you're outside of God's love. You're yeah. worthy enough.
1: Yeah. My my therapist calls that radical acceptance. Cool. Accepting the reality around you as it is, you know, you're and sometimes that might even be, you know, you are worthy. At least worthy enough by the standards that the Lord has set for you to enter his temple, you're worthy. Uh, by the standards that he set for you to take the sacrament, you're worthy because you're repentant, you know. I think that, yeah, like we're all we're all a little bit unclean, um, but we can be clean enough to, I guess, have access to the Savior's atonement. And really you don't need to be clean to access the Savior's atonement. The, that's kind of the point. But I think just that that radical acceptance that, objective view of reality saying like, okay, I'm not perfect. And I did do those things, but I have repented. Um, and even though I might not be feeling clean right now, I know that I am because I have done everything that I need to do. Um, I have, you know, I'm doing all the things that the Lord, maybe not all the things, but that's okay too. You know, I'm not doing all the things, but I'm doing what I can right now. And so I think that that's kind of a, an attitude that I have to remind myself to have. Uh, and then I'm sure that anybody that struggles with scrupulosity has to remind themselves to have as well Is just take that objective view and look at your life almost with like a bird's eye view and be nice to yourself. Have some self-compassion.
0: It's really powerful what you just said. Thank you. Really powerful. I love that. Yeah. I'd have you come speak to the YSAs if I were still <laughs> a, a singles word bishop and teach some of that stuff. I, yeah. You know, I reckon I, I wrote down when you were talking about that. Sometimes I hear, which I don't think is doctrinally accurate, that every time we sin, Christ cries. And I've, I I, I don't believe that. I no. th- I believe that he has paid the price. Mm-hmm and he actually rejoices when we take advantage of the atonement it doesn't add to his burden mm-hmm. and i look at the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep as mm-hmm. the doctrinal foundation for that is that when something is found christ rejoices yeah. you and me when we might offend each other we might make each other grovel for a while but yeah i just think he enjoys forgiving
1: i i really do too as you were speaking i kind of thought of like a example you know if you get a broom for a gift you know like say my mom gives me a broom i don't know why she would but if she did she's not crying every time i drop something on the floor and she but she gets excited when i'm using the gift that she provided for me and i think what you said is spot on with with christ it's you know when we get a little dirty he's not he's not crying like yeah i'm sure he's sad about the 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 pain that it's causing us but i think that yeah like what you said is spot on he enjoys forgiving he enjoys when we take advantage of his atonement and when we take advantage of his his love and his mercy um and yeah i just i think that's a very powerful principle
0: so i think culturally we can create a better feeling about repentance and Mm -hmm. about the atonement that Mm -hmm. You, you, that doesn't create shame. Yeah. Even some of these visuals of, you know, breaking the law of chastity and it's like nails hammered into wood that mm-hmm. you can take the nails out which is sort of representing the atonement but mm-hmm. the holes are still there. I just don't believe that's doctrinally accurate. Mm-hmm. I, the prodigal of a son, there are no holes mm-hmm. in that story, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. Yeah. And so I think that we can move on from teaching that way. I don't think it... Means that we're not as commitment to keeping the commandments. We just create a better, healthier approach to keeping the commandments, and then if we mess up, which is kind of part of mortality, just to learn from our mistakes and move forward. We have a healthier mindset.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what are some things, if that would add to your burden? I've I've wondered about things that. As people open up, they often – I'm not trying to lead this question too much, but we often yeah. turn to spiritual tools to solve something, mm-hmm. and that often is the right thing to do. But sometimes yeah. that can add to a burden if I give you a conference talk or more scriptures to read right. or or just say, gosh, if you're not feeling you know, right, then this is my – formula to make you feel right mm-hmm. and why that might actually be the exact opposite thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's another thing that my therapist and I have talked about is like sometimes at church we get the, what we've dubbed as the church prescription. Pray every day, read your scriptures every day and you know, keep the Sabbath day holy and keep the commandments and everything's gonna be sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. Um, However, you know, if you break your leg and you go and talk to your bishop, your bishop's not going to tell you, oh, just pray and read your scriptures and that leg will get better. And it's the same with uh, mental health issues. Uh, we, We can't put those mental health issues in a realm that where they don't apply. And so... Yeah, I think oftentimes that church prescription is given for mental health issues when in reality those individuals should be referred to a trained mental health professional to help them cope with those, those issues and to help them overcome or really accept that they're probably going to have to deal with those issues if not for the majority than the rest of their lives. And so, yeah, I think that we, we in a way need to draw those lines in the sand. They're very clear for the physical versus spiritual, you know, and and it's not that reading your scriptures and praying doesn't help when you're overcoming an illness or a physical injury. And it's the same with a mental health issue, like a mental illness or a mental injury, Let's call it, but it's important to recognize that it's supplemental, and it's not the primary um, the primary method of treatment.
0: I like that, and I think when I think of if I had OCD for washing hands, um, whatever that's called. <laughs> um, I wouldn't go to my bishop for that. Right. I would go to a therapist. And this is where this scrupulosity is so complicated because it's spiritual O C D so you'd naturally exactly. go to your bishop.
1: Exactly. It's... And your
0: bishop would be very helpful because he would tell you if you really did have something to confess, that would be helpful. But if you in your example, you have a lot of stuff that you didn't need to confess, you just did, but it's mm-hmm. it reinforced the whole cycle. Right. And so and a well-meaning bishop would recognize that you know, through his service, he's helping somebody mm-hmm. and it would just take a, a nuance or an, an understanding to recognize what's going on here. Yeah. Um, that I'm glad brave men like you, know I'm uh, willing to share so that people can do better.
1: Yeah. Well, thank
0: you. Talk about, um, does it make, when you're in the height of, scru- <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know what to say, the <laughs> height of, of a scrupulosity <laughs> episode. Yeah.
1: Is it? It sometimes does that block your ability to fill the spirit absolutely talk about that it's 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 like I said it's kind of like the fishing the fishing line that you're trying to untangle. you just you worry that what you're feeling is the spirit um which isn't the case because we learn, you know, the scriptures tell us that the fruits of the spirit is, you know, love, not anxiety. <laughs> but when you're in the, the thick of a scrupulous episode, we can say, you you don't feel any peace. You don't feel any love. You, you feel anxious and just awful. Like for me my my head hurts my my chest gets tight and all i want to do is is go to sleep um sometimes even in the thick of uh, of those episodes it can lead to suicidal thoughts um thoughts that this would just be i i would rather be dead than experience these things
0: and that's your in this the rock on the hard place analogy to the max. Mm-hmm. And so then you're starting,
1: up, I've got to get out of this space. Yep. I've and so then you out. go there. And that's the only way out is what it feels like at the time. And it's, it's scary to be there because at least in my case, when, when I've struggled with those thoughts, it's, it's never been, you know, I've never wanted to, to leave the earth or stop living, but I just feel I've felt that that is the only escape in that that moment. Um, what's been helpful for me with that is to remember that I've been in that moment before. Um, I've I've obviously not committed suicide, and I've come out on the other side, and I've been okay. And that to me has also been reinforcing, kind of f- not fighting fire with fire, but you know, just holding out. And, um, fighting through it, you, uh, you kind of prove to yourself that you're going to be okay, that the, the storm will pass, you know, using the Rocky analogy. Yeah. He gets pummeled in the face a lot, but he, at the end, usually of most of the movies, he wins the fight. Uh, and he, every time he gets knocked down, he gets back up every time he gets knocked out, he gets back up, um, at least in the, the big fights. And so I think that I, have just recently watched all the Rocky movies with all my, with my family. So that's a great thing to do. I I love those movies. Um, but yeah, even in the most recent one, he says, you know, life's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And I think that's kind of how it's been for me. I I've been hit a lot. And I'm sure anybody listening with any sort of struggle has been hit a lot. But you can keep moving forward, even if it's painful, even if it hurts. You can keep moving forward and still win. I love that.
0: Talk about if you could go back and talk to your missionary self at age at 14, 15 months out when... (laughs) everything was starting to crack. I can't remember. Qu- what would you say to yourself if you could go back and actually be your oh. own counselor or just be your be your companion aware of what was going on uh-huh. with you?
1: Oh, that is a good question. Um, I think I would say... Oh, that's a really good question. I think I would say, I think I would ask myself, do you, do you feel like these feelings are coming from God? And in my hysteria, I'd probably say something like, I don't know, maybe I don't think so just because I've been taught that this doesn't come from God. And I would say, you're exactly right. It doesn't. Um, I would talk to myself and help myself. See, this is something called scrupulosity. It's a form of religious OCD. Um, these things that you're experiencing are obsessions and you're doing a good job about not acting on the compulsions. Um, you are going to be okay. I think is probably the big thing I would try to drive home because I wouldn't be able to promise myself that I'm gonna get over it, or that I'm never gonna to have to struggle with it again, or that you know some magic pill is gonna come out that I can take and all my scrupulous thoughts are going to go away. But um, I think just the big thing is that, yeah, you're you're going to be okay.
0: It's a really good answer. Yeah, it's a really thoughtful answer. Thank you. Talk about. Um, yeah, you could push a red button and make this go away, which I'm sure you'd love to push. Yeah. But let's just say you can't push it. Um, why are you glad on some level that you have this?
1: Yeah. Um, it's kind of weird to think that I am, but I am. I, I think it's it's made me more empathetic, more capable of understanding others and their struggles when they describe things that parallel the things that I've described. Uh, whether it's, you know, another mental illness or whether it's, um, you know, LGBT individuals, I, I feel like I'm able to recognize the reality of their struggle, which I think that sometimes we have a hard time doing when we don't have struggles. Um, I feel that it's going to assist me in my, my, career that I'm pursuing. Uh, what else? I love those. Yeah.
0: Um, and I'm going to read this quote that I read a lot. Go for it. Some of you that are one-time listeners haven't heard it, but you regular listeners have. And it's Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest called the wounded healer. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. Yeah. And so Noah knows this desert, but, and so you can authentically lead people out of this desert, even your younger self that you did on your mission with really good advice there. And, it, and you, to your point on that one, you couldn't lead them completely to end scrupulosity. But part of leaving out of the desert is hope and tools and understanding what's going on.
1: Yeah. Maybe but, learning how to survive in the desert. Well said. Yeah.
0: And, but then your ability just to understand the other examples you gave, I think is part of the beauty of this experience for you. Yeah. And I think of, you're unmarried now, but I think of your future wife and you're, she's going to learn this about you. It may not be on date one, but. (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) But my guess is, you know, and you'll have to message me sometime down the road that she will love this about you and it will connect her to you in an authentic way that no other relationship was possible. And there's going to be something about her that you'll just get and heal because you can understand and. And that part of your relationship will be part of the reason you fall in love. And she'll recognize that you'll be able to do some things for her and your future children that are unique to you. Yeah. And so she wouldn't push that red button to make you make this go away. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably both push the red button to just be able to manage it like you are. Yeah. But I think it. that's my feeling. And that your kids, you'll just get things quicker with your kids because of this experience. Yeah. And as a therapist, you may not open up very often about this being part of your life, but you will be able to just match your clinical training and all your clinical hours with your own experience to help people. Mm. And you'll leave some of those appointments, Noah, recognizing that I have helped somebody in a way that no one else has, that was just unique because of my experience. And that may come not only in your professional career, but also in your church service. So. I love, you know, I I love the way you just own this.
1: Well, thank you. I I really appreciate that, Richard.
0: So um, I wanted to reference a couple other podcasts. Um, One of the first ones we did is episode 191 with Dr. Deborah McClelland. Um, She had an Ensign article. You could search for it about scrupulosity. It's in the digital only version. I think it's September 2019. It's a great article. I encourage everybody to read that. Deborah McClendon, and then she came on the podcast, episode 191. Um, Episode 199 is Tim Chavez. I hope I'm saying your last name right, Tim. (laughs) In the last 20 minutes of that podcast, Tim talks about his own journey with scrupulosity during his mission. It's pretty brutal. He finished his mission, but gosh, he just concluded that he was outside of God's love and unsavable but he would go save other people, and his older self would go back and wrap his arms around him because that's not the way God felt about Tim on his mission. Yeah. But the only way he could get between a rock and a hard place and get out of that spot was just to include he was unsavable. <laughs> and that, that's a brutal road. Yeah. And I admired Tim for finding a way to survive, and he's got a beautiful wife and a beautiful family. and. And really heroic um, guests like you are, know to talk about this. But no one wants God to get to that spot to solve a, a mental challenge. So yeah. it's wonderful. We have excellent clinical people, medication. Medication to me is the ram in a thicket in some situations. Yeah. Um, it's not. I have taken medication in my own life a couple times. I don't right now but I've just felt that that's just a ram in a thicket. It's something that's God put on earth to help us. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm glad that you talk about that in a very
1: non-shaming positive way. Yeah. Thank you. Uh,
0: Noah, I understand you do a podcast. Tell our listeners about the podcast and where to find it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, at part of my major, we have a practicum class. And so, uh typically what we do is we will teach workshops or, or something like that Do make like a blog. And my partner, uh, her name's Amanda Bria. She and I decided to start a podcast. Cool. Yeah. So we, uh, we've entitled it survive and thrive from courtship to marriage. Uh, actually this last, let's see the Valentine's day. So yesterday, um, is when our first episode was released. Um, we're basically what we're doing is we're going through the different stages of a relationship and talking about how to not just survive those stages, but to, to thrive. And so first episode sounds a little bit tin canny, um, but we just got recording microphones and it's going to sound a lot more professional now. That's great. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so, just tell our listeners again how they find it.
1: Yeah. So uh, that can be found on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And I think really wherever you might listen to podcasts, I know that...
0: And the name, and tell our listeners the name of the podcast too.
1: Yeah. Survive and Thrive from Courtship to Marriage. That's great. So please check that out. That
0: podcast to be l- linked in this episode description and I just think podcasts are great. So the more that get started and the more that help communicate important topics like you and Amanda are doing, yeah. it's great. So um, do you have favorite – I sometimes write down questions that come to my mind while you're
1: talking. <laughs> yeah, do you no have problem. a favorite Book of Mormon prophet? Ooh, that, that's another good question. I love Moroni.
0: Tell our listeners Why?
1: Moroni Moroni had it rough he saw his people die he saw his father die he I I assume saw his family die he was alone and he was being hunted by the Lamanites and He had every reason to be bitter, to be angry with God. But one of my favorite scriptures in the Book of Mormon is when he says, I, Moroni, will not deny the Christ. Just he is adamant. He is he he knows who he is. He he knows God. He may not understand God. He may not understand why thing why the cookie's crumbling how it was, but he loves Christ and he understands that Christ loves him. And despite every reason, every conceivable reason to to deny the Christ, he still refuses to do so. And that to me just speaks volumes. I, I think that that is a an amazing example of of someone of a man of faith of or a person of faith um that despite what happens to you you can be at peace and and know that there is a a greater purpose or a greater plan that's being accomplished
0: it's great i love that i'm gonna just read a concluding statement Then just see if you have anything else that comes to your mind, Noah. Um, But I'm just coming back to the original Facebook post that I started with and it's Mm. to help lower anxiety and stress. So sometimes we'll have this conversation at church or in society and we say, gosh, you know, the youth seem, they're coming home from their missions early. Um, there's so much more stress and anxiety. Of what's going on? and I think it I, I think it's a combination of lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. but I think some of it's self-imposed mm-hmm. <laughs> culturally um, when we create this expectation of perfect obedience, exact obedience, or sin resistant generation. and I want people to be obedient, but to me, it just needs to be in a in an attainable way. I' I have felt that it's interesting that God could have set it up so the obedience becomes harder as we get older. So Noah, you would be kind of recognizing I'm coming into my sixties and going, (laughs) wow, this is your decade, man. (laughs) But I think God set it up so it's just take most of that happens, you know, younger because of the lessons that come into our lives and the learning and the growth. And so I think some of Christ-like attributes that come into our life come through just making mistakes and learning and growing. So I've always felt like that's... And it, the, I've always felt the key test is not if we make a mistake, but how we handle it mm-hmm. and what we can learn from it and can we improve. And the improvement often makes us more empathetic and gives us Christ-like attributes. So it's a careful balance I'm not inviting people to not... Work for obedience or live the commandments because obviously that brings blessings. But I yeah. just think culturally we need to, you know, to, there's a lot of self induced anxiety that I think we create um, in some of our youth for these incredibly high benchmarks that for some it's just so unattainable that it the shame that then it creates or the not measuring up create worse problems than the expectations in the first place. So any concluding thoughts, Noah?
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's very, very true. Um, going back to the, the radical acceptance, I just feel that it would be so much more helpful if we could accept that we are going to mess up. Um, Not using that as a justification to mess up, but just accept the fact that we live in a fallen world. We are imperfect human beings. We can try our best to to be obedient and and do everything that we can. Um, But also understand that because we're imperfect, we will have lapses in judgment. We will have uh, periods of doubt of even defiance, um, but I think more than, yeah, just avoid the shame, help help people understand that if they mess up, they can be clean, they can be saved still, you know, and help us accept the fact that we are imperfect um, and not place this expectation that, that you have to be, especially right now, um, because we are, we're being perfected and part of that process is messing up. Um, something that, um, I think my dad told me this one time, he said, you never, let's see, you never learn anything by doing it right. And I think it's the, the same in life. You, you don't, you don't become perfect by being perfect if that makes sense. I like that. Yeah.
0: Um, a couple more thoughts came in my mind, so we're, <laughs> we're not quite ending yet because I just <laughs> I wanted to reread this quote I shared at the beginning. Um, Satan doesn't win if we sin. He wins if he can cause us to believe the lie that we are never good enough, are outside God's love, and if our situation is so helpless that the atonement of Jesus Christ doesn't apply to us. Then on Facebook, I wrote this the other day. Um, It's really Elizabeth Smart that taught me this, to give her credit. And she talked about the difference between virtue versus virginity. And I've written here, virtue is a beautiful spiritual gift that is always within your control and can't be taken from you. Virtue is what potential spouses should be looking for. And not a checklist requirement that includes virginity that may exclude some of Heavenly Father's finest children from consideration as your future spouse. And I I love the focus on virtue. I obviously want people, that's not a permission to not live the law of chastity, listeners. Um, But I I recognize that in my own life dating, I kind of had this spirit, I had this checklist of things that I wanted in my wife. Um, never divorced served a mission probably never really sexually active um, and I just recognized that and I ended up marrying someone that w- was not a return missionary and I recognized that uh, that checklist was preventing me from dating um, wonderful women and who and the one that ended up becoming becoming my partner so that's part of the broad message of this podcast perhaps is to get away from the checklist and To really understand our doctrine and to live our doctrine and and um, recognize that culturally we have work to do in some of these areas anything else you want to add noah oh man i love um (laughs) i love this concept that you shared of radical acceptance especially of ourselves sometimes it's easier to do that of other people than ourselves Mm -hmm. we can be the hardest on ourselves and that's not our doctrine
1: yeah i think just my final thought which is we just need more love in this world. That's what, that's what Jesus wants. That's what God wants. So may, may our intentions behind everything we we say in private and public at church, let it be love and and let that be apparent because I think that that is ultimately what's going to, to help those that are struggling, that might feel marginalized, that they can, know that not despite their imperfections but even in their imperfections they are loved and so that's that's all i got
0: (laughs) noah kelch great concluding remarks thanks to our listeners for joining us on another episode of listen learn and love hosted by richard osler